0: Second, I got wide of April, and I uh, went out, and I started off warm, and then I got cold, and then I got warm, and then I got cold because it was raining, and I got in the shelter of this uh, this uh, building, and then the rain stopped, and then I was warm, and then I was cold, and then I turned down Rebel Road, and then I turned on Sorensen Road, and I'm headed back, right? Okay. When all of a sudden I'm pedaling, I got a headwind, it's on the beak, I'm cold again, about to get colder. When all of a sudden, to my right, I hear just... this. And I'm just like, what's that? You know? And it was an otter. And I kid you not, the otter was like startled by my presence on a bike and it jumped at me and took me off my bike. And we wrestled and we were going mano mano. And it's like through the blood and the guts and the beer and everything was like crazy, right? Finally, I got the upper hand. I got behind the otter, put it in a chokehold. The otter cries out, Nomas. Because it was a Spanish-speaking otter. (laughs) Man-to-man, mano-a-mano, literally means hand-to-hand. Man-to-man, one-on-one, head-to-head. That's where we find ourselves today. Page 973, verse 11, chapter 2. The first few verses are, are, are a practice that Paul is engaging in, his actual behavior in a given situation. The second set of verses, uh, 15 and 16, are the correct thinking that backs up his behavior. We'll spend this week and next week looking at all of these, but specifically next week focusing on 16. Today, verse 11, chapter 2, 973. But when Cephas, okay, Cephas, same name, Paul, okay? No. Cephas, same name as Peter, right? Paul's writing, addressing Cephas, Cephas, Peter, same name. With me? So in Cephas, Peter came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face, man to man, because he stood condemned. Now, there's a lot of like wrestling in the commentaries about this. Like, how was Peter condemned? Was he condemned? Was he condemned condemned? Was he, and I'm like, you know, I try to take a plain reading of scripture. I think Paul's just saying he knew he was wrong. He stood there and he knew he was wrong. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James... Okay, now that's code because James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, okay? And he's a Jew, okay? And he has kind of a higher standard, or so he thinks, a higher standard for what a follower of Christ should look like. For before certain men came from James, so certain men under the authority auspices of James, leader of the church in Jerusalem... He was eating Peter with the disciples. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile... And not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Paul versus Peter. Now it's intriguing because this isn't a position that Peter has always held. If we read Acts 10 and 11, Peter has this dramatic encounter via dream with the God of the universe and and has a green light to engage with non Jews, i.e., Gentiles. But something has happened, right? The circumcision party. I really want to have fun with this one, I don't think I should. Okay, a little bit of fun. This isn't referring to a Brit Malah, okay? But rather, a group of Christ followers who have a big-time stake in historic Judaism. Some are Pharisees, some are passionate Jews who have come to know Christ. Paul says, Peter stood condemned. And again, I don't think it means that Peter was condemned literally, like condemned to hell. I think Paul is just saying in Paul's language, which at times can be aggressive, he he was wrong before it even started. It wasn't like Peter and Paul were negotiating about this, okay? This isn't a negotiation. This is kind of like if someone were to come up to you and say, hey, water isn't wet. You'd be like, no, no, water's wet. Or a circle is a square. No, a circle is a circle. A square circle is a square. A squared circle is a boxing ring, which would fit within the theme of the day, but not the intent of the text. Paul's like, Peter was wrong before it even started. And I think Paul might be just a little bit derisive of the circumcision party. They wouldn't have thought of themselves that way. They'd be more like, no, this, this is what it means to be a Christ follower. And then borrow this big chunk from the law, the Torah. But the point being, what gets added to the gospel? Probably not much danger that any of us today will add the tenets of the Torah to our faith journey and say, You must X, Y, Z to be a follower of Christ. But what gets added to the gospel? What do we add to the gospel? What, what, do we, what do we, even in our thought process, make someone become if they are to be a true follower of Jesus Christ? What gets added to the gospel? I mean, I could say, if anyone's a really serious follower of Jesus Christ, plant a church. I mean, Seriously. That's what I've done. Everyone should do that. Slow down. S- slow down. People could say, well, if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, do this or do that. Or if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the political party or that political party. There's a great saying that a friend of mine who really i more of an acquaintance, haven't talked with in years, He would say, don't let your experience become my obligation. Now, that can be dangerous, right? Because we can justify just about anything that we want to justify. But, but, But what do we add to the plain, simple reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And if someone expresses something different, even though we hold it deeply, Can we trust the work of the Holy Spirit in that individual's life? That can we be less offended if they don't look or talk exactly like us and more attempt to understand how the Holy Spirit might be working in their life? I challenge us because I think we add stuff to the gospel of Jesus Christ all the time. And I think Paul would say to us slow down. Before you even start, you're already wrong. Specifically, what Paul's dealing with is the hypocrisy of Peter's conduct. Addressing Peter specifically, he says, hey, you act one way with one group of people, the Gentiles, but a different way with another group of people. And what it seems like you're doing here is that until these folks from Jerusalem showed up, you were fine eating with the Gentiles, breaking bread, teaching. It's probably a house church motif. It's probably Peter would have gone to communities or or collections of individuals who were Christ followers and would attempt to teach and engage with them and break bread with them and, and really have this beautiful, beautiful expression of grace and compassion and talking about Jesus. But for a Jew to really associate with a Gentile, that's no bueno. Paul's like, when no one else is around, you're okay eating with the Gentiles. But then when the followers of James show up, you all of a sudden have a big problem eating with Gentiles. And he calls it out. Hypocrisy or being a hypocrite which I think there's a difference between those two things. First off, let's talk about the idea of hypocrisy, that people truly watch what we do and engage with how we operate in life. Much is made of the fact that my generation and succeeding generations have have less interest in things of faith. I kind of disagree with that, But I can't discuss that right now because I'm not smart enough. What I can talk about is my own experience, which I feel fits like in this area. So in the early 90s, um, I was told by elders and individuals and people of influence that a certain political individual was a bad individual for how they behaved. I'm like, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. And so I said, sounds great. These people, these men and women were people of God, and they're like, look at this person's life, and you will see that they are bad news. And I'm like, tough to disagree with that. Fast forward a few years. I have those same individuals who with another political entity say, oh, 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 (laughs) don't worry about that person's behavior Don't don't worry about their behavior. It's not that big of a deal. And I'm kind of like, well, which is it? Because over here, the behavior gets condemned, and over here, the behavior is like, oh, it's no big deal. And for a person like me, I'm like, kind of seems like the only difference between these two entities was you like this guy and you didn't like this guy seems hypocritical I do it we all do it we all engage in behavior that others on the outside looking in would say not quite sure that is consistent we should always be aware that people are watching what we are doing and especially when an individual is making a decision about whether or not they want to buy into faith in Jesus Christ, yeah. Yeah, the consistency that exists in our life is super, super important. And our propensity, or at least my propensity to hypocrisy, should at the very least invite some modesty. The second part hypocrisy, or being a hypocrite. In my little brain, I think they're two different things. Had this discussion earlier this week with Eric out of his lecture on Wednesday night. Um, He's in Matthew, but Jesus is addressing a similar reality, this idea of hypocrisy or being a hypocrite. Hypocrisy acting in a certain way, kind of like a verb Being a hypocrite, a noun, it kind of gets into that idea we introduced a few weeks ago, right? Orthodoxy, right belief, orthopraxy, right practice, and orthopathos, right affection. So where is our affection? Is our affection for the things of God? Or is our affection not for the things of God? orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathos, the difference between being a hypocrite, having the right affections, and having the wrong affections. And perhaps I'm trying to draw too fine of a line on this, but I want to say I can engage in hypocrisy become aware of that fact, confess my hypocrisy, but not be a hypocrite. But a hypocrite is someone who lives, whose affections are, this is the world that I want to be in. I act one way with one group, but a different way with another group. Even if you completely disagree with the notion, and to be truthful, I'm not totally sure that I agree with what I just said, can we engage in a little bit of modesty when it comes to how we relate to other individuals and how we portray the gospel of Jesus Christ? And in our lives and in our behaviors, can we be ruthless and question, am I being hypocritical? Probably, if you're worried about being hypocritical, you're not a hypocrite. But our propensity to hypocrisy should, at the very least, invite some modesty. At any rate, Paul says, that's my position, okay? Peter's messing things up, and here's why. The orthodoxy. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth, okay? So Paul's a Jew, Peter's a Jew, we're all Jews, and not Gentile sinners, okay? Well, maybe just not Gentiles, but okay, fine, Gentile sinners, I'll take that. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Now there's an important distinction here that some commentators want to draw out because we've said we're not justified by works of the law. Sometimes we shorten that to we're not justified by works and we're like, well, we're not saved by works, so what difference does it make what I do? Nope, that's not what it says. Works of the law. So we're not justified by fulfilling the law We're not justified by our human behavior but through faith in jesus christ it doesn't say behavior doesn't matter so we also have believed in christ jesus in order to be justified by faith in christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified you have to love the word paul's like it's not about the blood that flows in your veins And it's not something that you can do, but rather a relationship that one pursues. And again, you know it's a great word because it begins with J-U-S-T. That's providence, baby. I don't know what else to say to you about that. It doesn't say labarification. (laughs) I'm just saying. It doesn't say Quisbergification. Holstification? Nope. That's not what it says. I'm just like, hey. Some people are like, you're going to hell right now. (laughs) Paul says there's no such thing as justification by human effort. There's no such thing as being good enough, following the law is not enough. Salvation starts. A relationship with God starts with faith in Jesus Christ. To be justified, and and it's important because Galatians, Paul does something a little bit different that he doesn't do in Romans, But first off, this word, Paul has the corner on the market, okay? He's the guy who writes and expresses these things more completely, I would argue, than than the other New Testament authors. Paul uses the word justification in Romans to refer to something that happens right now. We can be justified, forgiven for our sins. But here in Galatians, the verb tense is different. It is future it is to be justified it is will be justified and i say this not to create any sort of challenge in our understanding of justification because if you grew up like i grew up you learn justification sanctification glorification those are the steps of salvation okay but really that little phrase is incomplete because paul's saying yeah no Justification isn't something that happened in the past. It's something that will yet happen in the future, although it does happen in the past. Paul speaks to that in Romans. I want to tease out that these concepts are in one respect deeply complex And in the next breath, reinforcing the very simple notion that to be a follower of Christ is to have a rich and deep abiding relationship with Jesus for life. And on that, and on that alone, faith in Jesus alone will we be justified. It's not our effort. Tomorrow, uh, the Boston Marathon, okay, and and, and we have this gentleman by the name of Eliud um, Kipchoge, And uh, he has the world record in the marathon. He has run it in, I think, two hours, one minute, and some odd seconds. What you can do is that you can jump on this thing called the uh, tumblator, okay? The tumblator allows you to simulate Eliud's marathon pace for one quarter mile. And invariably what happens is that People just wipe out. They jump on the treadmill. They simulate the pace, but they can't keep up even for a quarter mile. For those of you that are keeping score at home, that's a 69-second quarter mile, a 437-mile, which is, be, I've, I ran a 515-mile once in my life. I can't imagine sustaining a 437-mile pace for two hours. You can't keep up with him. You can't, you're not, you can't be fast enough. No one's offended, right? No one's offended when I say you cannot keep up with Eliud. No one's offended here, right? Same idea is in play. We cannot run fast enough to save ourselves. You, you, You can't. You can't. Paul's perspective has this legal essence to it, right? Will be justified. Paul's emphasis is future, standing before a holy God and being found justified. Why? Because of faith in Jesus Christ, because of a life living for Jesus Christ. Paul's view of life pretty much destroys any person's argument that I'm a good guy. And because I'm a good guy, I'm going to heaven. You can't run fast enough. I can't run fast enough. We can't run fast enough. But on that day when we stand before a holy God, which we will all do, it's coming. And we're asked the question, why should you get to go to heaven? Please don't say it's because I'm a good guy or a good gal. It's not fast enough. Please don't say, oh, I prayed once in a while or once. Please say, because I have faith in Jesus Christ and I have a deep, abiding relationship with the Savior. Justification. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Please pray with me. In the quietness of the moment, if you've never started a relationship with Jesus Christ, it can start today. You can simply cry out to a holy God. You can cry out to his son, Jesus, and say, I want a relationship with you. I want to experience this thing called justification. I want a deep, abiding relationship in which I trust you to forgive my sins and to lead me every day of my life. And if you pray from your heart something as simple as that, you start a relationship with the God who created you, the Savior who loves you and died for you, and the Spirit who works in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.